When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor, and what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show, so you can see you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So for instance, we can have polls, we can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just, uh, that's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well Podcast. I am your co-host, Joshua, and I am joined as always by Kevin. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing well. And our guest today is Jane Kim, um, who has a gigantic and amazing resume, but she started off as a civil rights attorney um, and also was the first Korean-American elected official in San Francisco. She represented San Francisco's District 6 on the Board of Supervisors, which my business was in for almost her entire run as the supervisor. Thank you, Jane. And um, she's also now part of the uh, Democratic Central Committee in San Francisco. And I think you got the most votes for your position during That's that right. election. All right. Um and you've also run a few times against uh, Mr. Uh, or, you know, Scott Weiner. Um, and you've run for mayor. Uh, you've also been the director for uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign out here on the West Coast. And um, you did a lot of national work for him as well. So massive, amazing resume. And we welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. I know you're busy. And this was like a last minute thing. So thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I mean, let's just cut to the chase. We only, I only just found out you used to be in a punk band. <laughs> well, I, I was in an all female band called strangely, um, in my twenties, we actually played at um, all district six venues. You know, this is way before I had any thought that I would even run for anything one day. Um, we played at brainwash at bindle stiff at so it was just fun. I can't say you were very good, or at least I should say that I was not very good. I don't want to speak for the rest of the band. What did you do in the band? I played bass guitar. How did you get in that band? We were <laughs> well, that's what I mean. The standards were not incredibly high. 
we were four good friends and we all happened to play different instruments. And actually I, I was really the only one that didn't truly play my instrument. Um, one of my friends was um, learning how to play drums. I had two friends that could play guitar and I was trying to learn the bass guitar. Let's just say that I was probably the weakest link in, in our band, but that being said, it was so much fun. Well, and there's photos floating around of you all playing at Brainwash, so. Yes, there, there are definitely some photos out there. And, 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 and also keep in mind, we were organizers. We organized events. We founded a venue space called Locust Arts. And so we booked indie bands all the time. And so I think a lot of bands uh, felt the need to return the favor by booking us on their shows as well. Which is amazing. I mean, that's how it works, though, in the indie scene. Like, that's the whole deal, right? That's true. It, it's it's an incredible community. And, you know, I, I've been a part of Bindlestiff, which is in the district that I represent in, you know, just a block away from where I currently live. It was so incredible to be a part of this community of organizer, activists, and artists um, in this independent scene in San Francisco in, you know, the the early 2000 days. Yeah. So much fun. So you're, you are, you're a lawyer as well. What, what kind of, you know, you said long before you ever thought about running, what made you decide to run? And especially in that district, which is, you know, during the time you were representing, and I don't know what the demographics are now was both the poorest and the richest district in the entire country. That's right. Um, I was a community organizer for six years. I worked with young people, um, largely public high school students and young adults And and I was always political from a very young age, from about the time I was 13 or 14, I kind of knew that I wanted to go into public service and activism. And so in that sense, the path wasn't that strange, but I never thought I would run for office. I was one of those activists as a young person that actually really disliked politicians. I didn't trust politicians. I always thought voting was a very disempowering exercise where I was picking between the lesser of two evils. So it was, I was kind of the most surprised when I decided to run for office. But when I was working with um, public school students, I, I started attending board of supervisor meetings, school board meetings, attending budget committee hearings. And I, I started to see the difference that local elected officials could make especially local elected officials that had started out as tenant organizers or as public school teachers. And I quickly grew to understand that one of the most important things that any elected official does, whether they serve on a school board or in the state legislature or in Congress, is that they get to vote and determine how to invest our dollars, um, which is taxpayer dollars, back into our community and neighborhood. And, And so, you know, when I served on the Board of Supervisors, a lot of my friends didn't understand what I did. And, and how I would often break it down is, well, I, I work for then a $10 billion foundation. But instead of being accountable to or reporting to a single wealthy individual or a collection of wealthy families, I am accountable to everyone because everyone contributes to this fund. And my job is to help invest those dollars back into our community. And this budget is not just a series of line items and dollar signs. It is a document that's, that states our values and priorities. So how much do we spend in public education, in parks, 
in um, streets, uh, in police, um, and in which neighborhoods do we invest those dollars in? All of that is in the budget. So the values and priorities of, of everybody um, is in this document that elected officials get to vote on. And it's one of the most important things um, that electeds get to do. So, um, you know, I, in 2004, uh, a number of friends of mine started a group called the League of Pissed Off Voters yeah. um, across the country. And they wrote a book called How to Get Stupid White Men Out of Office. And, <laughs> you know, the idea was, you know, to really um, support whoever ran against um, George W. Bush, who at the time we thought was, you know, one of the worst presidents we had ever had in, in the country, in our history. And, of course, you know, thinking back on that statement now, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny how far we've come. Um, and, and the book was about young people, people of color, women, LGBT folks running for local office and winning and losing and the changes that they were able to make both by organizing as a candidate and, and later as an elected official. And um, that same year, uh, mayoral candidate Matt Gonzalez, who just barely um, lost the mayoral race against then Supervisor Gavin Newsom, um, Green Party candidate, uh, incredibly progressive, super smart, uh, reached out to me and asked me to run for the board of education. Mm-hmm. And I had no interest at first. I, I said, no, um, wasn't going to do it. Um, then my friends who started league of pissed off voters and wrote this book, um, really inspired and pushed me. And when I looked at the list of candidates running for school board, I realized that I would be the only candidate running that year that even worked with public school students. And so I kind of ran, honestly, a little bit out of naivete, um, but two, because I just felt it was so important to have a voice on the school board that worked with public school students and, and to have a voice from someone who worked in our immigrant communities, because um, SFUSD is 90% students of color, over 50% come from immigrant families. Um, I'm sorry, 70%, 70% come from immigrant families and 50% are Asian American. And at the time, the school board really did not reflect those demographics. And, and that's why I ran and, and I lost that race. And then I came back two years later, ran again and came in first place amongst 15 candidates. That's amazing. Wow. Well, I think the interesting thing, the comment that you made about the lack of representation for Asian Americans and, and I mean, women, women of color in general, I mean, for such a supposedly progressive city at that time, it was pretty abysmal. I mean, just, you know, there was, there was, there was some powerful sort of people behind the scenes, but I mean, really like, you know, that, that book and the sort of you running and them encouraging you couldn't have come at a better time to sort of start shifting the demographic on the, you know, in politics in San Francisco. You know, it's so interesting because it happened so quickly in terms of Asian American representation in San Francisco. But when I uh, ran for office, there was only one Asian American on the board of supervisors. And, and I believe two Asian Americans on the board of education there weren't a lot of us. Um, and I think at the time only four Asian Americans had ever been elected to the board of supervisors. This, despite the fact that Asian Americans have a very long history in the city and County of San Francisco. They came here during the gold rush, um, in the 1850s, they were lured here as cheap labor, um, known as indentured servants, um, both to service, uh, the workers, um, here in California and to help build the railroad. Yet despite this incredibly long history in the city, you know, it took 
you know, over a hundred years before Asian Americans even won an office here. And then probably another 40 years before we saw them become kind of the force uh, that they are more so today, at least within the borders of San Francisco. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, it's such a, uh, uh, like a, I mean, Asian culture is so influential on the city as a whole, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it, it, anywhere you go in any neighborhood, you're going to see people of, you know, of, with backgrounds from different parts of Asia and like, you know, our Chinatown has always been a huge cultural force and it's just an amazing place, you know, as well as Japantown. And I think what's even more interesting is beyond those demographics, you were elected as the first Korean American in, Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, which is just totally mind blowing. Um, Like, how do you feel like you kind of were able to bring some of your culture into your, your work as well? Because you worked really hard for, I mean, and you continue to for, you know, people of color and, um, Asian Americans in San Francisco? Uh, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, but I, I I mean, I will say it, it makes an incredible difference to have a diverse table making a set of decisions for a city and a community. So it would not be complete if only my voice was at the table either. Um, You want folks that have different experiences and you see it just like in terms of, you know, when, when policies come before you, there may be an aspect to that policy that you may not have considered until your colleague points out their experience or their story or their stories of their neighbors and their family members. And then it becomes a lot clearer to you how, you know, that policy may impact uh, different communities differently. Um, when I served on the Board of Education, it was incredibly important for me to make sure that Asian American parents and students knew that they had someone to go to. And by the way, um, when I when I won um, finally um, two years later, I won with two other women of color, an African American mother and a Filipino American mother and parent advocate. And it was the first time in San Francisco's history that three women of color won all three seats on the Board of Education. And I believe the first time people of color became a majority on the board of education, it was incredible. Um, this was in 2006. Yeah. And, and then I think that that was incredibly important to kind of guiding, um, the work that we did over the next couple of years, but, but just as important, I think, besides representing the perspective of the community that you come from is to also be able to show that you can be a leader for all communities, and so I think mm-hmm. we take for granted that, you know, white American is a default, that white Americans can represent black Americans, Latinx, um, Asian Americans, et cetera. Um, but I think there's a lot more questions as to whether an Asian American can represent the black community, Latinx community, white community, et cetera. And that was incredibly important for me to not just be able to speak on behalf of my community, but to be able to be a leader in all communities and to spend a lot of time in other neighborhoods and other communities to demonstrate that. And so actually a lot of the policies that I worked on um, disproportionately impacted our African-American and Latinx communities. Um, And I thought that that was really important to both showcase um, how leadership can look different, A, and B, how important it is for us to be building coalitions, as you pointed out, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, I think too, having been, you know, having my Business. So when you were representing District 6, my business was there. My home was in the Richmond District. 
Um, and we had a big win for, you mm-hmm. know, the, the left in the Richmond district a couple of years ago, which is also amazing. Um, but I, I think that that's a really good point. I actually, having been your constituent, can say that you did a really good job of representing different cultures, including white culture, quite honestly. You know, if you want to put it in those terms, I don't know if there's a white culture, but, you know, but, you know, business owners, small business owners in that district, in my opinion, uh, were served well by the policies that you helped implement, especially manufacturers. And you and I worked really hard on a very specific manufacturing initiative that passed, um, you know, and, and I think being in your district gave me a little bit of benefit because NPR wanted to talk to me because you were my, my supervisor at the time. But (laughs) I I think, and, and you know, the funny thing is, I don't know if we've ever looped back on this, that, that initiative actually helped social imprints when we needed to move because the, the place that we were at in district six was getting converted to a, a single level office. Um, there was uh, the KOFY TV 20 building um, in Bayview that basically was PDR space. And we got it at a rate that we could afford because of the work that we did to make sure that PDR space was kept in, in the city. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm super proud of it. And it also benefited my company, you know, down the road. So, you know, I think you do uh, kind of walk the the walk of what you're talking about and representing all cultures. And as you know, my my employees are an incredibly diverse group of people. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think it's important to to take all of it into account. And I never thought about that default switch of like, oh yeah, of course, white men can represent everybody. And then there's these questions around other cultures representing all of us. And mm-hmm. it's it's actually it's sort of a you know, I mean. A, awakenings in every podcast for us. It's sort of a, like a default. It's a little bit of a racist default, quite honestly. <laughs> so, um, but I, I don't want to talk too long. I want to, I want you to continue because I think the, your story is incredibly compelling as well. I mean, you know, women uh, in politics have had an uphill battle in so many ways and things changed so quickly in San Francisco after that first election for women as well. Thank you, Kevin. And, and I just want to say, I, I mean, the work that you do at Social Imprints is incredible, and it's so important to have businesses that work to hire individuals who have barriers to employment, because we're never going to give, be able to give folks um, a second chance or a third or fourth chance if we don't give them an opportunity to succeed economically um, in our community. And, and so I've always been excited to support Social Imprints. And, and I just wanted to pivot a little bit because you brought up a policy that you and I worked on to ensure that manufacturing and production distribution repair remains a vital part of San Francisco's economy. I think the other aspect that I left out besides the budget is that another aspect of the work that local elected officials do that is incredibly important is that we regulate land and how land is utilized in cities and communities. And so just as I said that our budget is a document of our priorities and values, our planning code is a document of how we believe a healthy and balanced city looks like. For example, you wouldn't want a city that was all hotel just to attract tourists, right? Because San Francisco is a beautiful city. We could easily become just a tourist destination and nothing else. Um, but you do want some hotels because it brings a certain type of revenue. And also it allows you to hire certain types of workers that work in restaurant, entertainment, um, hotel. Um, you also wouldn't want a city that's all office. There's a lot of pressure to make everything in San Francisco an office space so that we can accommodate, you know, the growing tech industry, for example, or the finance industry or whatever the industry du jour is. Um, and also there's a lot how of these people. 
haven't these people played SimCity? I mean, honestly. <laughs> you zone out the Joshua area, goes to a game. Your industrial and your commercial and yeah, your residential. You need, you need your residential, and you know that's why the Airbnb fight. A lot of folks didn't understand is that we zone things hotel, bed and breakfast for a reason, and we zone other areas residential because right. we need places for workers to live, and we don't want all one type of worker in San Francisco. We want folks that work in manufacturing to live in San Francisco. We want folks that work in tech and in finance to live in San Francisco, and, and you do that via zoning. If you don't zone certain areas manufacturing, you're not going to get those workers. And manufacturing provides living wage jobs for individuals without a college degree. If we don't have folks that can repair elevators um, and and do delivery um, and make T-shirts in San Francisco, we're not going to have a diverse and balanced economy and community. And that's where land use plays such a major role. And I was really excited to work on this with you, Kevin, because you remember there was a ton of opposition. Oh, to yeah. us dedicating land to something that was considered of a lesser value to a lot and of landowners. I, I mean, even within the manufacturing community, there was pushback on it. Yes. And, oh, know, yes. I mean, I got I got called <laughs> out like, hey, why are you endorsing this publicly but without talking to us? You know, and I'm like, because I believe that we need manufacturing space in San Francisco going forward. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how else to put it. This, yeah. this is a no brainer, but we did get a lot of pushback. And, but I think, you know, it was one of those situations and we've seen a lot of little wins like this in San Francisco. And that's why I encourage people going back to how you started this to vote and get involved locally. I mean, national elections, I'll be totally blunt. And as bad as Trump has been for me as a human being, um, you know, and in, ter- in terms of my beliefs, the, the, the administration at the top does not affect us nearly as much as mm-hmm. San Francisco city and County mm-hmm. does. And so mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm working into administration number four right now as a business owner. And I can say that we perform well because we're a good company, not because of who's the president necessarily. Mm-hmm. And, but what can affect our business and like our employee base and all the things that sort of matter to us more directly is what people like you are doing in office, you know? And so I, I'm always like, if you want to write a giant F you on the presidential part of the ballot, do it, but vote locally, vote on your initiatives, vote on your supervisor, Mm -hmm. vote on your, your state Senator, vote on your state rep. It's like vitally, vitally important, important, your mayor, you know, I mean, these are the things that people sort of miss when they get resentful at politics. Absolutely. And, I, and you've been such a great um, like carrier of that message over the years. And actually, working with you and Sonny and a few of the other people that you've held close over the years are the ones that inspired me to really get more involved. So I want to thank you for that as well. Um, I, that makes me so happy to hear. And I'm also really grateful to Rob Gittin, who introduced us. Yeah, totally. Rob, totally. who has done incredible work in the city, working with youth that are unhoused. Yep. Um, yep. And, and really supporting them. And I know you are a big partner in that work. I, I love what they do. Um, the So I want to talk a little bit, I know, because we're going to run out of time, as always, really quick. <laughs> I'm already like, oh, my gosh. Um, so you this year, and this is why it's been hard to sort of like pin you down, because during this election cycle, during the, the when when we were, you know, everybody was running for, for president before the actual, you know, f- the election itself, when when um, when when we were in the primary season, you were you were 
working for Bernie Sanders. Um, and we're super busy because I tried to get you on then. And it was like, well, I've got five minutes at noon on Friday. You know, it was like back to back to back. And you actually invited my family to come see Bernie speak uh, when he was here in, Cal- in Northern California, which was literally one of the best days of my life. And I had met him once before because of you during mm-hmm. a, a race you were running. Mm-hmm. But um, talk a little bit about the early, the, the primaries. And then, let, then I really want to drill down because I've got some questions specifically about Arizona. So <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, first of all, it was an incredible honor to work for Senator Sanders and to work on his presidential race uh, in 2020. And it was the first time, you know, 2016 was the first time I had a presidential candidate that spoke my policy language, right? And, and by the way, I say this as someone who hugely supported Barack Obama when he ran in 2000 and in 2012. Um, but to have Senator Sanders talk about an unabashedly, an unabashed approach to economic redistribution, uh, Medicare for all, um, tuition-free college, eliminating student debt, uh, Green New Deal. It was just, it's incredible to really believe um, in the candidate that you're you're supporting, but you know, Kevin, I'm I'm with you. I've always been all about local and state politics more than national. And, and, and just so folks know, our state legislature passed two to three times as many bills as Congress does on any given year. Yep. So when you think about the majority of the laws that impact you um, on a daily basis, it's the laws that are being passed by your city legislators and your state legislators. It's not what's happening in Washington D.C. Um, that being said, um, I, I did take a break from, I guess, local politics by working on this presidential race. And it was the first time in probably 50 years um, that I think California has ever seen a primary matter in the state. Yeah. I don't think California had seen presidential candidates really campaign in California like it was Iowa. And it was amazing. And um you know, California is such a huge state. I mean, the Bay Area alone has more voters than the state of Iowa, right? And that's just one of five regions. We actually had to break California up into five states. We call them five areas. We gave each area its own director, its own field director, because it, it, it's such a huge population. And and then we door knocked. We door knocked neighborhoods and communities that had never been door knocked before. We did a heavy investment in our Latinx outreach. Um, for example, which we resoundingly won. And we did heavy outreach to voters under 45. Um, and we resoundingly um, won that vote too. In fact, Sanders won more voters under 45 than Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar combined. And and it's just noteworthy wow. to add that while Obama won California voters under 30 by five points in 2008, Sanders won that same demographic by close to 50 points in 2020. Yeah, right. that's incredible. It's, it's incredible. And, and, and because of the work that we did, you know, despite all the things that people say about how California is not as progressive or as liberal as it seemed, because as you know, in November, we, mm-hmm. um, we turned down reinstituting affirmative action. Uh, we turned down um, closing a corporate tax loophole to fund public schools. Um, and we voted down basic worker rights, like paid sick days and healthcare for gig workers. Mm-hmm. And this was considered incredibly disappointing for the left. But yet eight months ago, Bernie Sanders swept 47 out of 53 congressional districts in California. He came in first place in 47 out of 53 congressional districts. And he didn't just win the Bay Area and Los Angeles. He resoundingly won in traditional conservative areas like Central Valley, Inland Empire, 
um, and San Diego and Orange County. And, and all of Why that, do you I'm, think that is? Why do you think yeah. Sanders appeals to them as well? Well, uh, well, the first thing I'll say about ballot measures is that ballot measures, unfortunately, are largely more of a reflection of how much money each side spends, more than a reflection mm-hmm. of people's political proclivities. I think that if we had equal funding on both sides, we would, we would be closing loopholes on corporations to ensure they're paying um, into our public schools, um, et cetera. The two things that Bernie Sanders' campaign had is, one, is that it actually did have money. We were yep. the top fundraising candidate um, in 2019 mm-hmm. and 2020. So Bernie Sanders had money. Um, and he was powered by small-dollar contributions, which had really never been seen before four years ago, where you could amass millions of dollars off of donations under $20. And, and that alone, I think, just speaks to how popular the agenda that the senator was talking about was, that that people were willing to make small-dollar donations to this candidate because they wanted to see it get more play. And, you know, his top donors were teachers, nurses. They worked at Starbucks and Amazon and Target. And second, we used that money. We didn't just, you know, blast the airwaves with expensive commercials and mailers. We we really didn't do that. We door knocked. We used that money to fund door knocking and phone banking operations. And we went to people's doors. And, and I will say this kind of in retrospect, seeing where Sanders did well and where he didn't do so well, we won in all the states minus South Carolina where we were door knocking. Yeah. Um, we did not do well in states where we did not have a field operation. It's really just hard to scale that in 50 states. Um, but what we found was that when we went to the door, a lot of people didn't know what Medicare for all was. They just heard scary things about it um, in the press. They thought it was some socialist communist thing. And then when we explained what it was, people were like, oh, cool. I totally support Medicare for all. I totally support tuition-free public college. Um, it just, it, it, it required a conversation because these are concepts that people are not used to talking about anymore, even though, frankly, they were, you know, topics du jour in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think a lot of folks don't understand these concepts as well today. And so the door knocking was really key to us winning um, California. And it was extraordinary to be yeah, a part of that. I mean, I can say going to his rally in Richmond, and I had seen the senator speak a number of times over the last few years because I try to get out when he's in, you know, in the Bay Area, um, even at small events, you know, like the the school board event that you did where he came in and, and spoke, you know, it was amazing. And I, I just think he's a really unique voice. Um, and he articulates his points so well, mm-hmm. you know, I, that's, and that's part of like the door knocking part of it. And th- that's a lesson though, for local people that want to win election, go out and meet the people that you're trying to get to vote for you, especially Absolutely. if you're a supervisor. And the reason that you, that I feel like you won a second term pretty resoundingly is because everybody knew you in the district. You were out and about, even when you went out at night, like you went to places in the district, you ate dinner at restaurants in the district, you visited companies in the district when they were having events. You know, I mean, Zendesk is still a client of mine because you dragged me along to basically an all night string of events one night. And you were like, okay, we're just going to go here and I'm going to introduce you to this person. Okay. We're going to go here. and I'm gonna... <laughs> I didn't know like, that. That's incredible. I was out- I felt like I was just out collecting clients, you know. Thank you for sharing that with me. 
when people know you and it's, it's really hard. And I, I mean, I made a joke before we started about your Facebook page because there, there's always people that are going to dislike the policies that you're, mm-hmm. that you're, you know, that you're supporting. And it would become a little bit of a, an S show at times, like just angry, 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 usually men, you know, mm-hmm. saying shitty stuff. And, um, mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is like everybody in the district knew you. I mean, it wasn't like some random person that's like they've never met or isn't around. And, you know, you legitimately live in, in District 6. It wasn't like a shady rental house, you know. Um, it was like this is where you live and do business and are around your, you know, your community. And so I think that the door knocking for Sanders is a prime example of how po- all politics is local. You know? Absolutely. We we made Sanders' campaign a distributed local race. We treated his race like a local candidate would. Um, and and by the way, you brought up door knocking. You know, when I ran for supervisor in 2010, even though I was the only elected official running, nobody endorsed me. I wasn't endorsed by the Democratic Party, the Chronicle, the Bay Guardian, Labor, uh, Chamber of Commerce, you name it. I didn't get that endorsement, although I did get the League of Pissed Off Voter. Um, and yeah. Tau Daily, which were both very significant. Um, but we I was, still use their voters guide, by the way. Yes, it's it's my favorite voter guide in, <laughs> in the city. And um, you know, I was definitely the underdog in that race. And so we were we would have door knocked anyway, but we had to door knock because no one was gonna get a glossy mailer saying Labor, Chamber of Commerce, Democratic Parties uh supports Jane Kim for supervisors. So I had to go to the door. And we door knocked everyone. I went to every single room, occupancy hotel, and the Tenderloin and South of Market. I got kicked out of almost every market rate condo in South Beach and Rincon Hill. Um, I mean, we, we door knocked everybody. And I remember, you know, Kevin, you brought this up. You know, I represented a district that included both the poorest neighborhood and the wealthiest zip code in San Francisco. And I remember my campaign manager, Sonny Angulo, who you mentioned, talking about campaigning, feeling like whiplash, because one morning we would be working the lines at Blue Bottle or at Four Barrel, and the next morning we'd be working the breakfast uh, line at Glide Church or St. Anthony's. But what I learned from that campaign was actually everyone wanted the same things. Folks told me that I would need like three or four different platforms to run in District 6, But everyone wants their neighborhood to be safer. Everyone wants their schools to be quality schools for children. And everyone wants affordable housing. Everyone. I mean, the question, of course, the solutions people may disagree on, but people actually do want to see the same thing for their community. And, you know, while at the time the campaign was super hard, it was rough. um, I'm so glad in many ways, of course, because we won, that, you know, I won that way, that I, I won by door knocking. I really got to know this district. I knew tons of our constituents before I even walked into um, City Hall. And I had heard from so many folks. It, it really is the best way to win office. Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, I say that um, winning that race. So it's always easier to say that when you win. Yeah. I mean, but it it, it is absolutely true, though. I mean, love love you or dislike your policies, People knew you and, you know, you had a reputation for being in the community. And I think some of the events we did where we invited the whole block to our, to our, uh, warehouse when we were there, when the, the ones that you came and spoke at were some of our, our finest and 
and our best where people really showed up and like enjoyed the community, you know? So there's a lot to be said about that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it just goes back to the same formula, you know, get to know who you're asking to vote for you, especially Mm -hmm. if you're running for local office. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about Arizona a little bit because you spent primaries over you're you know now we've got biden as our nominee which obviously some of us had to mourn a little bit but um not as i didn't feel like i was mourning as much as i did in you know in the previous election in 2016 like Mm -hmm. i really like once south carolina hit i kind of knew what was going to happen i saw it because we'd already been through it right but I really thought in 2016, Bernie was going to just be the shock candidate. Like it would be populist against populist, you know, like, mm-hmm. here we go. Let's see who's got the best ideas for the nation. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was before I knew what a psycho Trump was too. So, um, but I, I, so you, you spent a bunch of time in Arizona and I just want to say awesome. <laughs> Cause uh, you know, we saw what happened there and it was, it is mind blowing. I was there during the election season and uh-huh. I saw Trump, yeah, almost the same time you were. I was in Sedona. Oh. And I saw Trump, the Trump, they did that like Trump truck parade every day in downtown Sedona. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and my wife shouted at them one, one afternoon, which was amazing. She's like, boo. And a whole crowd of people on the street were like, yeah, you get him, girl. You know, it was amazing. But um, I mean, just w- tell us a little bit about what it was like to be on the ground of like a truly purple state. Yeah, well, one actually is that people were super friendly in Arizona. At least I, maybe I was given some really nice walks, but I got to walk in Phoenix and Flagstaff um, and in a bunch of different neighborhoods. And I was there the week that voting had started in Arizona. And it was really important to the organizers to not just turn Arizona blue, but to win the first count because we knew that Trump would declare victory if the early count was going his way, even if the ballots later um, would turn towards Biden. And every state counts their ballots differently, by the way. But in Arizona, they do count their votes sequentially, meaning that the first week or first 10 days of voting would be the first um, count that would be announced. And so it's very important to the organizers that we win that first count in Arizona, which we did. As you, as you saw, we actually had a very wide margin in Arizona um, early in, in the night with Fox declaring um, That's Arizona right. Fox for Biden. Yeah, so that, was amazing. that was amazing. And it was strategically very important. So it wasn't again, just about winning Arizona. It was about winning Arizona's first count. And, and so when I got there, it wasn't about persuasion. It was just getting out the vote. You know, we were going to folks that we thought would vote for Biden, but we're like vote today. And this is how to right. do it. Yeah. And uh, Maricopa County actually, I think over the last, at least the last decade has had an incredible vote by mail system. So the other reason why donors invested in Arizona was that there wasn't as much concern about voter suppression because Arizona had been doing vote by mail for at least a decade and they were doing it very well. In fact, um, if you vote by mail, you get texts, text, regular text messages from fill the ballot and people knew who he was. They're like, fill the ballot. Um, he texted me, told me my ballots on the way. And, and so, and, and also two thirds of Arizona voters lived in Mariscopa County. So geographically you could really, you know, just inundate, um, this one County and, and get out the vote. And what I saw is that Arizona is definitely changing. A, a lot of people have moved to Arizona. B, communities of color are realizing the significance of voting and that actually their vote 
can swing yeah. um, a state in their direction. It was incredibly empowering to watch. And more than anything, it was exciting to see how excited the average um, Arizonian was to vote, actually. And so most of the time was just spent um, explaining where to do it, how to do it, how to get their ballot out, um, at least at the point that I was there. And, you know, the pandemic, um, unfortunately, left so many people unemployed. Um, but Unite Here, uh, which is our hospitality hotel workers union, really um, paid a lot of their unemployed workers from Baltimore, Chicago, California, um, to come and be full-time paid canvassers. And man, they really worked. They were working six days a week, full days, and 100-degree-plus weather. Um, but yeah, they really, not, really turned out. The climate's not kind there, that's for sure. No, I no, mean, that, no. That's, that, that in and of itself is incredibly inspiring and why I love unions as well, because they, you know, they, they put their money where their mouth is too, you know, and that's, that's no, it's no joke. I mean, to get people to come out that could probably be collecting unemployment insurance and go to work shows the dedication and the hard work of those specific industries, which are mm-hmm. again, suffering right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I was making jokes on the internet earlier because I don't know, uh, Guy Fieri has raised like an obscene amount of money for out of work restaurant workers, like $21 million. Oh, that's yeah. 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 And wow. so somebody posted it and I'm, I'm at the point now, cause a bunch of my kind of cool guy friends are always like, Oh my God, his style, you know? And I'm like, Hey man, anyone makes fun of you, this guy again, come fight me. Cause he's like, he, he's all about putting his money where his mouth is, you know? And, but that's, I mean, that's part of why, this, this election was so hopeful for me personally, as somebody I've since, since I've had my civil rights restored for 22 years, I've never missed an election, you know? And I think, um, watching young people get excited, you know, it's funny because politicians target the same people I do because millennials care about how they spend their money and they care about how they vote. And if you can get them just to get out and do it, we're going to see some amazing results. And I think Arizona is a perfect example, as well as the primary in California this last year. It's just, it's really, it gives me a lot of hope for the future when I see people taking on progressive causes and actually backing it up by showing up and, and exercising that civic right that we have to vote. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge one. And I was so stoked after the Arizona win, after being there and seeing all the Trump signs and all the other stuff, you know, cause if you come into Arizona from California, it's all Trump land until you get to like Sedona and Flagstaff. And then it's a, like a mix, you know? And mm-hmm. so there's Trump, mm-hmm. everything, yeah. billboards, people with, Trump signs on their lawns, on their businesses. And then you get to Sedona and it's kind of a mix, you know? And, but when I saw the results coming in, I was like, yes, <laughs> so amazing. But that's where the majority of Arizona residents live. Um, to, yeah. Like I said, two thirds live in Maricopa County. And, and by the way, Kevin, you reminded me, I had mentioned that there was a number of losses on progressive policy issues in November in California. But what we did one is, um, expanding the constitutional right to vote to 40,000 Californians who are on parole but have completed um, their sentence, the vast majority Amazing. of whom are black and brown. And I'm so proud of California for expanding the constitutional right to vote um, to those who have completed their sentence um, and should be able yeah. to vote. It's it's incredibly – I mean, when you've already kind of lost everything and then you come out of prison – 
you know, to an already difficult situation. It's like those, those things that seem so small are so big, you know, and that's such a huge win. Um, you know, and I think that was one of the, the initiatives that I was like really clear with my family members on, like, you absolutely have to support this. Like, when you make people coming out of prison feel like they're part of the community, and that's one of the ways you do it, is you allow them the right to vote after they've served their time because you've done your duty to your community if you've done your time and you're paroled. You've, you've done it. You're done. You've paid your price. You know, you make them feel like they're part of the community by doing things like fighting for their right to vote. You know, and it's a it's a huge deal, and I, yeah, that's that is was a huge progressive win. Um, it was why I was so proud to work on making San Francisco one of the first city and counties to ban the box. Yeah, and talk about that a little bit, so for people that don't know what that means, because it's actually been like law in in San Francisco for a while, and now it, like it expanded to the rest they of the won. state, but. Yeah. yeah. So talk about ban the box and what that actually means. Cause it's uh it's really interesting and important. So before I served on the board of supervisors, I, as you mentioned, I went to law school. I worked briefly at lawyers committee for civil rights. And so in 2013, they approached me and my chief of staff that also came out of lawyers committee for civil rights and Asian law caucus to draft a measure to ban the box um, on all employers in the city and County of San Francisco, meaning, um, that employers could not ask you to check a box if you have been arrested or convicted um, of a crime um, and that they could not ask you about your um, criminal record until they have interviewed you. So we weren't preventing employers from learning about your history, but we wanted employers to be able to at least evaluate an individual without that bias. And if you even made it to the interview process, you're at least somewhat qualified for the position um, that you're Mm -hmm. applying for. And what we're finding actually was that tons of qualified individuals weren't even getting asked to be interviewed because they checked Mm -hmm. that box. Mm -hmm. So we worked very closely. And, and at the time, actually um, I did not have six votes on the board of supervisors and I didn't have the support, the full support of the mayor and the chamber of commerce. And actually a lot of small businesses were very against the legislation. And, um, You know, I remember thinking at the time, well, let's just bring this to a vote and it might be symbolic, but we'll just keep pushing on. But actually, it was my chief of staff, Ivy Lee, who's also a civil rights attorney that really pushed me back, pushed back on me. And she's like, you know what? We're going to bring everyone together. We're going to get the Chamber of Commerce. We're going to have business owners to sit down with us. We're going to have them sit across the room with folks that have been convicted Mm -hmm. um, and with our ACLU and Lawyers Committee representatives. And, you know, I got very impatient because we spent nine months negotiating at the table. We started in March of 2013, and we didn't introduce the legislation until January of 2014. And after nine months of sitting across the room together, the most extraordinary thing happened, which is that we introduced legislation. And yes, there were compromises at the time. And and I'll say this because it's on the record. The head of the Chamber of Commerce came out. We called it... Um, we didn't call it ban the box. We called it the, uh, um, Oh, I can't believe I just forgot the, the title of it. Um, Oh, we called it the fair chance act, right? Cause we didn't think that a lot of people knew what, uh, the box was we called it the fair chance act. And the head of the chamber of commerce came out to our committee and he said, you know, when I first read this ordinance, I called it the fat chance I'll hire a convict ordinance. 
But now a year later, he's just like, I don't think this legislation has gone far enough. If there are individuals who have served their time and want to come back into the community and work again, we should be doing everything that we can to reintegrate them into society. And it was one of these beautiful moments because he was so upset when we had first mm-hmm. called him about this ordinance. And to see the turnaround that had happened over these nine months of us all sitting together was extraordinary. Um, I came out with 11 votes. It was unanimous. The mayor signed it. Wow. And then two years later, the state followed up with their own act that mimicked ours that actually went farther than ours. And then we went back and, you know, we, we, we amended it and we kind of um, amended a lot of the compromises that we made um, back in 2014. And just goes to show how important these steps are. Right. And also how important it is for people to sit down because we live in such a divided country now. Right. And we do need to sit down at the same table more often because there is a humanity that I think that we can touch. And I know I'm now sounding a little idealistic and West wing, (laughs) but I, I do really believe in it. And as you say that politics is local, this is why all the door knocking and, and the in-person contact, is so critical. It's never going to go away with the internet and all the digital advances that we have. The old fashioned pavement pounding person to person contact is so important. And once we get out of this pandemic, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do some rebuilding. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's an important point. And it was actually one of the questions that I had that I wanted to ask you. So we're through the election. Joe Biden is our president elect, much to the dismay of the newest uh, parlor members. Um, but so I've kind of been a little bit, you know, I've been vacillating between like, oh, we need to do outreach and be a little nice and see if we can pull some of these people into the fold to the other extreme of <laughs> like, you know, F these cult members, you know, you know, let them be sad like we were for the last four years, you know. And so I just wanted to kind of hear how you're feeling about all that. And like, because honestly, you know, as I've said before, with influences like you and Sonny and some of the other people that you've worked with over the years, I, you know, I usually can help myself find a little middle ground if I listen. So I just want to kind of see where you're at with reaching out to Trump supporters and how we sort of, you know, I'm, I can guess how you're going to feel about it. But also, you know, if, if I'm right, how we bridge that divide a little bit, because mm-hmm. it's sad, quite honestly. I'd like to stay pissed, but I'm not a stay pissed kind of guy. And um, I, I'm just finding it incredibly sad. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wish I had the answers to everything. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't, I don't, but I, I will say this. I, I don't really believe in the thesis that, you know, Trump voters um, are illogical or rational. I, I think they knew that, that a president Hillary Clinton wouldn't necessarily improve um, their life in any right. noticeable way economically. And, and Trump actually was very effective in linking Hillary to this global elite and Wall Street. Mm-hmm. He did run a very populist campaign. And in some ways, you know, I saw his final commercials in 2016 after he won because I, I didn't think he was going to win like many people in California. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of his commercials looked like a Bernie Sanders commercial, frankly. And I was stunned by it. And I think there is a sense on the ground that those on top don't care about them. And I think Trump effectively channeled that fear, anxiety, and energy and said, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to be your representative. 
I mean, of course, you know, he ended up just supporting the super elite. <laughs> I mean, his policies, right, um, weren't there for um, those that are on the ground. But he campaigned that way. And I think voters kind of thought, well, what the hell, right? And, yeah. and, and by the way, the wealthiest um, in our class have spent so much time over the last four years discrediting, discrediting government and governance, and this mm-hmm. was a very mm-hmm. intentional investment when, when, when actually the conservatives really thought they were losing this country in the 60s and 70s, and they were fighting to claw it back. And one of the things that they realized was really effective messaging was that maybe we should stop trusting government. If, if you hold right. Americans in the 60s, Americans actually had more faith in government than in corporations in solving public problems. I think it's like the opposite mm-hmm. today. Yeah. And if you think about it, who benefits when there's small government or less government? You know, the, the lines of President Reagan about, you know, I don't want government in my life, right? Who benefits right. from that? It's the people that are bullied, right? Like if the teacher yeah. leaves a classroom, who benefits from that in the classroom, right? It's not the kids getting bullied, right? It's the bullies. No. And so when you have less government, of course, you tax the wealthy less, Right because you don't need as much money to fund services and B you regulate less, you write less laws, right? That's what less government means, less laws, less taxes. And the wealthy always benefit from that. 40 years later after Reagan, we are really now living in a country that has the largest wealth and income divide um, since, you know, the pre-depression era um, where, you know, the top 1% has three times as much wealth as everybody else. And the top 0.1% has seven times as much wealth as everybody else. And, and so you see why this populist agenda is gaining um, momentum. And my biggest fear and why I campaigned for Bernie Sanders is that I don't want to just go back to the United States of 2016. Long before Trump w- walked mm. into the White House, um, we were sentencing thousands of Americans into prison. We were, our our immigration system was in shambles. Um, Our homelessness crisis was growing in cities across America. Our affordable housing crisis growing. Um, Seniors and immigrants were getting disproportionately evicted out of their apartments. All of this was happening before Trump walked into the White House. We need to do significantly more. And why I worked for Bernie Sanders is because he had that agenda in mind. And one of my fears is that if and this is a big if, if Biden is not able to make a difference in the lives of everyday Americans over the next four years, we're going to get Trump again in four years. It may not be Donald Trump, but we'll get another version of Donald Trump. And it might be even worse. So we have a lot of work to do. I really hope that people don't just kind of like, all right, we're done. We won. You know, peace out. I'm just going to go back to my regular life. We're going to have to fight just as hard in four years just as hard in four years. And so we have a lot of work to do. So my job, the role I want to play is to be the, is to push, is to push a really aggressive and ambitious agenda. Everyone's going to have their roles. They're going to be the negotiators. They're going to be compromisers. They're going to be leaders. Um, For me, I want to keep pushing uh, an unabashedly economic redistributive agenda because I think that our country needs it. We are, our democracy is not going to survive with this much inequality. Absolutely. And I have so much hope for California because, you know, we lost these, you know, big statewide ballot measures, but the press pays a lot less attention to local races. Like you said, Kevin, I was tracking uh, about 50 local races for school board, city council, board of supervisor, rent board, district attorney. 
And of those races, 40 candidates won at the grassroots level. And they all won via door knocking, even if they were outspent. And every single one of these progressive challengers who all ran on a platform of Green New Deal, Medicare for All, tuition-free college, every single one of those progressive challengers was a woman, person of color, and or LGBTQQ. And two-thirds of the 40 candidates were women of color. And in a state where now three out of every four voters under 25 in California are people of color, 75% of voters under 25 are people of color, and 50% come from immigrant and refugee backgrounds, these wins represent the power of a growing voting bloc that is committed to a progressive agenda. And so we got to build the bench. You know, we got to build the future mm-hmm. members of Congress and state legislature and, frankly, candidates for, for president. That happens at the school board and city council race. And so, um, you know, again, Kevin, just as you have um, expounded, I really encourage folks to get involved locally. This is really, again, where the work is happening, A, and B, where we're building the pipeline of leadership for our country and our state. Yeah. Well, and I will say, on you know, on my end, if you do and you're a progressive— and you believe in a lot of the stuff we've talked about tonight. I, Who's listening know, to this Jane, show I will, not I will support you in many ways, monetarily. <laughs> I will put your signs in my windows. I will be really excited. I will make phone calls, you know, and you, I will throw fundraisers for you. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. I want as many, you know, progressive candidates to run, you know, whatever age, I highly encourage people of color to run for office, you know, and I'm, I'm in, I'll tell you what my single biggest takeaway from the last uh, year in San Francisco politics is, well, it's, it's kind of double one. You got the, the, you were the number one vote getter for our local, you know, committee, which is incredible. wields a pretty large amount of power for our platform in, in San Francisco and in the region. Um, and two that chase a one, you know, and I'm so, God, that was like when the final vote counts came in after they tabulated the, you know, the ranked voting, I was just like, I, I seriously, like I actually cried. Like I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Having worked in this field of criminal justice reform, my entire adult life and watched men and women come in and out and go back to prison and just be treated so poorly. Like there's, you know, like they're not, like they're non-humans really to have somebody that really understands what it takes to, to, to reform this system. And, you know, people like you and, and other progressives in, in the Bay Area supporting him with all we had, it was just, it just felt like a win for the little guy, you know, yeah. like all the way around. It was um, incredible to see Chesa Boudin actually and Dean Preston win those two races in um, 2018. It was 2019. Oh gosh, I can't even keep track of the years. Actually, Chesa was the um, only California candidate that Senator Bernie Sanders endorsed that November. And and by the way, as I talk about diversity and I emphasize a lot about women, people of color and LGBTQQ, it's, it's a, it's a big table and we need, our white straight white men allies and women <laughs> we're never going to win if we're not right. if we're not a large 10 and as we talk about a diversity perspective sometimes simply being a woman or a person of color or immigrant alone can bring that diversity but as you brought up Chessa so intimately understands the criminal justice and prison industry because he grew up visiting his parents in prison mm-hmm. and to have a district attorney with that experience is is truly astounding. 
Yeah. Um, to have someone who is a prosecutor know what the impact means to put someone away, um, I think is 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 incredibly uh, um, valuable. Yeah, yeah, and we're, it's, we're 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 now becoming one of many bigger cities that are electing progressive prosecutors, mm-hmm, which is pretty mm-hmm. amazing as well. I, I like to always think that San Francisco sets the bar for, <laughs> for certain yeah. things. And these are the things that I'm really proud of, you know, having lived in the Bay area, my pretty much my entire life. And San Francisco was my home for 22 years. I mean, it yeah, just you know, is like, George Gascon's win in LA County was no small feat. He defeated yeah. a prosecutor that was still pursuing the death penalty after the government, the governor placed a moratorium on the death penalty. And, and by the way, San Francisco hasn't pursued the death penalty in many, many, many years. And as much flack as Gascon got in San Francisco, he reduced sentencing disparities between black and white defendants by 50% over his two terms as district attorney. And so him winning in Los Angeles, which is considered more moderate than um, San Francisco, is a big win. And by the way, this is the largest county prison in the country. Yeah. So his and impact probably one of the huge. scariest. <laughs> it's a it's a truly I mean that county jail is truly frightening in many ways because it's mm. it's way underfunded. Mm. There's way the the prisoner to guard ratio is way way too high. And it's a it's, it's also, just not it What's that? I, I said Go ahead, Jane. and and the LA County jail is sadly Los Angeles County's largest mental health service yeah. provider. And, and that that's actually was my next point is they they are incarcerating people that are that have substance abuse issues and have mental health issues at, at an ungodly rate down there. And that's mm-hmm. part of the reason it's so frightening because people are not getting treated for their illnesses and it's sad, you know. Um and not from a medical standpoint either. The the medical services there as hard as the nurses and doctors work, they're they're fighting an uphill battle because they're underfunded like crazy. Um, we've treated jails and prisons in California, like I say all the time, like their daycares and, and, um, and, you know, mental health facilities. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not a working, it's not a working model. Punishment model does not work. And it's mm-hmm. really sad, you know, and LA County is the perfect example. So hopefully, you know, uh, DA Gascon can make some big changes down there. He, he did, mm-hmm. he did do good work up here, regardless of some of my more lefty, friends and my more righty friends that didn't, that didn't embrace him, but you know, it's so we've, job. uh, yeah. And I we've was run really an hour, proud. believe it or not. <laughs> yes, we have run out. I was just going to say, I was really proud to work with George on fighting the jail rebuilt in this in, yeah. in my district. Oh yeah. That was the last, <laughs> it's so funny. I have all these like notes in my head. I'm like, that's right. Jane was fi- fi- fighting the 850 Bryant rebuild too, mm-hmm. which I mean mm-hmm. that I spent time in that jail. I was on the seventh floor mm-hmm. um and the sixth floor of that jail when i was mm-hmm. back in my, use, my drug floor. using days and it it that too i mean it was incredibly underfunded the facilities were old and they were like dilapidated and you know even worse was the tears at san bruno which think you know whatever you believe in they raised you know 10 years ago because that thing needed to go but it, like you know, the, the difference between the sixth and seventh floor in the new jail and San Bruno pods is like night and day, you know, mm-hmm. and they, you know, it just, I'm, I'm really glad that they did not rebuild that jail. It's, it was basically, it's a, it's a good riddance situation for me. Good riddance. <laughs> we, uh, See you later. In the, in that vote, 
you know, when we started the fight to not rebuild the jail, there was only two votes on the board of supervisors. We eventually, I think, got to eight, um, which is why we applied for the grant to rebuild the jail, because that was the initial vote count. And then by the time we won the grant, we were, um, and it was not me, but I mean, this collection of activists and organizers that convinced my colleagues to join me, um, we were, I think, the first county ever to turn down a state grant to rebuild a jail. We turned oh, wow. down, I think, like $80 million. And, and we asked the state to, instead of giving us that money to rebuild the jail, to give us money to build a mental health care facility, um, substance abuse treatment center, and affordable housing, because what I've learned over my time, and, and Kevin, you know this more intimately than I do, is that our, our criminal justice system, our prisons, have become our solutions to homelessness, poverty, drug abuse, and mental health issues. And, you know, the one thing I learned as an elected official is that it's so easy, actually, to fund more police and to build more jails and say that we're solving that problem. It's much more difficult to actually say that I'm going to work to make the city safer. And and, and a jail doesn't do that, right? Um, It hides the problem. It masks the societal inequities. Um, But the work is much harder if we're going to actually solve the inequities that will stop people from even being in that situation in the first place. But thank you so much for having me. Um, Oh my God. It was our pleasure. Are you kidding me? This was great. I feel like I've been like, you know, a little bit of a pest about trying to get you on at times, but like, this is why, because we get to Joshua and I get to walk back into our lives right now and be like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) we've got elected officials that have our best interests in mind, you know? And um, so I got to ask, do you, what, what's your, what's your plan? I mean, what are you doing next? I mean, I, I know you've got a big job right now. I mean, there's no, like, people don't understand probably how, like, all of this sort of, like, the committees and the, you know, and everything really works. I mean, it is a hell of a job to be representing, you know, the Democratic Party in a city that's so overwhelmingly Democratic, like, you know, San Francisco. It's a, it's an incredibly huge process to, like, get the right people on the ballot, go out there and make sure people know what policies and platforms that we want to push and, and then putting that up to the state and national level. I mean, it's a, it's a big job and it takes Mm -hmm. a, you know, a big, a lot of focus and a big brain to do it. So I'm, I'm glad you're doing it not me. Um, but, uh, so what, what's, what's your plan? What are you doing? What's happening? So as you mentioned, I, I still am serving on our San Francisco local democratic party, um, representing Democrats here. Um, two, I am really working to continue to build the pipeline of leaders and local elected officials who are running and winning office, um, whether it's their local city council, school board, water board, um, and eventually um, to move our progressive candidates to run for state legislature in Sacramento. Um, while Sacramento is overwhelmingly Democrat, it is not yet as progressive as, as I would like to see it be. Um, and so we have a lot of work there to build that pipeline, but you know, there's going to be a lot of turnover in 2022 through 2026. And I really want to push, you know, what we've really been seeing in New York state, which is um, both supporting and winning progressive electeds um, at the state level as well. And then finally, I'm doing um, policy advocacy work around affordable housing statewide, um, helping, awesome local elected officials in other cities with their affordable housing policy. And finally, pushing progressive revenue at the state. I want us to start taxing our billionaires in California 
who, by the way, in the first um, two or three months of COVID grew $175 billion while 7 million Californians filed for unemployment. Mm-hmm. And so COVID is our worst nightmare. We already live in an unequal society and capital has only further consolidated in the hands of the few during the pandemic. So while yeah. all of our small businesses are shut down, and by the way, small business owners are America's middle class at this point, right? So yeah. we are decimating our middle class right now. And, and, and by the way, through, through the fault of no one, I mean, this pandemic is, yeah. is forcing us to shut down our businesses. And, and of course, all the workers that they employ. And meanwhile, you know, Amazon, Target, they're doing better than ever. You know, the big conglomerates are making more money than they ever have. And actually, that's all money that used to flow locally into local stores. People still have to buy food and goods somewhere. So they're just buying them online. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're going to have a lot of work to do when this pandemic, when we get past, when we turn the corner with this pandemic of really supporting, again, everyday Americans. Biden has a lot of work to do. Like I said, Mm -hmm. if we're not able to make a difference in the lives of everyday Americans, I'm very fearful of what will happen four years from now. And so on that note, though, I do think that there's a lot to be hopeful for. Again, there's a lot of incredible uh, candidates that won office here in California. I'm so excited what they're going to do. Many of them are very young, so they have a long trajectory and runway ahead of them. And I want to be there to be a cheerleader and to be a supporter of this progressive left movement here in California. This is so exciting. (laughs) So excited for for all this. It's amazing. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you for, yeah. you know, just continuing to work for all of us. And, you know, I, I applaud the work that you do. As you know, I support it in every possible way that I can. I just am like, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of deep thinking progressives that really want to figure out solutions to these, these almost insurmountable problems. And, I, you know, I feel like you fall squarely into that category. Well, um, one of the things I... Yeah, well, and it's true, though. That's the thing. And so one of the things I'd be remiss if I didn't mention during this podcast, especially having a San Franciscan on, that um, is that we lost a longtime resident and a huge influence on our San Francisco culture, and especially the skateboard community uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, Tui Nguyen um, was the co-founder um, of the San Francisco Skate Club and an, um, an amazing human being, um, Sonny's best friend um, for many years. Um, she, uh, her and her husband, and she, she has a master's degree in like multiple disciplines, <laughs> was a brilliant and amazing empathetic human being that helped hundreds, if not thousands of youth in San Francisco to find a better way to live. And she did it through skateboarding. And, you know, I, a little bit emotional about just the, I, I hope for everybody that they can be remembered the way that she was, because this world would be a better place if that was the case. Um, truly an amazing human being. And the one story I have about her uh, over the last couple of years during when she was sick is that she came to social imprints and I was going to rent the skate club, a very cheap, like a, like rock bottom price space. And at the time they needed it because they were, they were, they were, possibly losing their space. Mm -hmm. And she came back and said she couldn't move the skate club to uh, the Bayview because it would be too far away from her kids. And so they figured out how to stay in the neighborhood they were in. And that's the kind of person she was, you know? And so 
as we've seen stickers and graffiti and, you know, social media posts all over San Francisco the last uh, few weeks. We love you and we really thank you for your service. And I wanted to dedicate this specific podcast to her. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin, for that beautiful tribute to Twee. And she really is a role model for all of us. And I'm so lucky to have known her and so lucky to have had her support and love and care um, and to really experience what she provided to so many young people and adults um, throughout San Francisco. And so her work and her spirit will live on in all of us that have been touched by her incredible generosity and, and beauty. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is how we are going to close tonight. And if you have a little extra cash in your pocket, you can donate to the San Francisco Skate Club. You can Absolutely. donate to the San Francisco Democratic Party, and we can get more progressives elected here. And Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. You're on mute, Joshua. Thank you so much for coming on. It's very nice to meet you. And I was just going to say, kids, if you're listening, this is what a politician sounds like. Aw, thanks, Joshua. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for listening, everyone.